and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal's podcast of February 2023. I'm Sarah Edwards and I'm joined by... Hello, I'm Rick Boddy. Fantastic to have you all listening again and we've got a smorgasbord of papers for you today. A little bit on COVID, a little bit on testicular torsion and a little bit on domestic violence in the emergency department. So I'm going to kick off with a paper which is titled Humans Not Heroes, a Canadian emergency physician's experiences during the early COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And it's from our Canadian colleagues with the lead author being Anna Tran. If we all remember, I'm sure we do, back in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, lots was happening very quickly and things were changing, you know, almost on an hour by hour basis at times. And this paper was done using um, back right at the beginning between May and September of 2020, so right at the beginning, where they conducted uh, 16 interviews um, in a single centre, trying to really understand uh, people's experiences about the early COVID-19 pandemic and looking for things that made things worse and things that made things better within the pandemic. Um, We know now, um, and we knew generally that obviously not only the pandemic, but pandemic type things, you know, undoubtedly cause a huge amount of psychological distress and anxiety. But actually, what this paper was looking to add was try to understand if there were any specific factors that were associated with this distress. So of the 16 interviews, 11 were female and five were male, and again, done in the early part of 2020. And the themes that came out from these um, interviews were things such as disruption and the loss of the emergency department shift work and how that was having to change really quickly. There was a lot of stress around COVID-19 and the uncertainty and information that was being bombarded at them. There was increased team bonding, which could be a good thing. Uh, Potentially, um, there was a great loss of personal life stress and changes for that. Huge concerns about patients' isolations, miscommunication and Um, a disconnection from care and finally there was um, emotional distress and what this paper really adds is and and you know particularly now sort of you know three years since since you know the beginning of that is really those those acute feelings and fears and, and quantifies some of those factors that were were affecting those physicians and whilst this has been done in Canada um, I feel that's probably can be reflected around the world, really, and it's really nice to you know get those early feelings way back when when the when the pandemic started. And I think you know this has good knowledge for us, you know, for ongoing things that we need to think about with as the pandemic still continues to unfold. I don't know what your thoughts were, Rick. I thought there were some really interesting things here. So this was done at a time in Canada before the pandemic had really taken hold in that country. They were watching the rest of the world being hit by this horrible virus and it hadn't yet hit them quite so badly. So it was a time of great anxiety. I can remember what it was like in the UK at the start of 2020 when we saw it coming and we were feeling so anxious about it. And I picked up a couple of things. One was um, the work-related thing. This feeling of information bombardment was a really interesting thing that they picked out. I, I certainly can relate to that. You know, remember we didn't know anything about this virus, how to treat people. People were coming in, were so sick. We wanted to know so much about it. Uh, and information was coming at us from all different angles, but it was difficult to make head nor tail of it and decide what was, what was good information yeah. and was going to affect our practice. 
Um, and particularly, I remember, you know, I'd be starting a shift in the emergency department and the information we had about COVID at the beginning of the shift and 10 hours later was very different and the protocols were changing nearly hour to hour. And again, that really highlights what this paper does is you can't bombard people in a stressful situation with changing information. You need to bring it down, get it succinct and only give out, you know, information on a need to know basis. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I picked out was the personal stress, the greater personal stress. And there was a quote that they gave, which I found quite interesting. It was um, it was relating to one of the participants' elderly parents who said uh, they'd rather get COVID from them, from the participant, who's a clinician, of course, uh, and die than continue with this. That's how painful the lockdown was. So clearly, you know, it just affected people's well-being so much not just COVID, but the, the lockdown and all everything surrounding it um, affected people's well-being so much. And that segues really nicely into the second paper, doesn't it? Because I've taken a look at another qualitative study from earlier in the pandemic, which looked at the impact of COVID-19 on the well-being of residents in the United States. So again, we've got a qualitative piece. In this one, they've interviewed 17 uh, residents in emergency medicine and with uh, semi-structured interviews, and they've done a thematic analysis to see what were the factors that affected their well-being. And they've pulled out five different themes. So the first theme was a feeling of isolation from the peers in training, which um, I think we all kind of relate to. There was cancellation of, uh, of, of teaching and such like, and, um, and therefore it just felt like you were a little bit isolated, a time when you needed more training as well. Uh, there were desire for an in- increased acknowledgement and structured leadership support. I think in times of crisis like that, we know about this in wartime, for example, people respond warmly to strong leadership, clear direction. And there seems to be a theme that suggested that uh, the residents wanted some clear leadership, actually, in this context. There were concerns about personal needs and safety within the clinical environment. Uh, so, I mean, I can certainly relate to that. Do you remember all of the anxiety about the personal protective equipment and uh, yeah. whether you might get this lethal virus? And we had colleagues, I'm sure many of us know colleagues yeah. who got very sick and even died during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a factor. Number four was the fear of miseducational opportunities and a lack of professional development because it was very service oriented during the pandemic. People switched away from being trained to actually just delivering pure service with the demand of COVID. Uh, and then, number, and of course, things were cancelled as well because we couldn't get together face to face. So that was another factor. And then the final thing they picked out was the need for enhanced mental and physical health resources, because of course it was such a such a stressful time. So the authors have picked out a few uh, tips, potential approaches that might be used to mitigate for these things if we end up in the same situation again. Things like structured peer to peer mentoring, uh, junior mentoring. Uh, we've got making sure we get scheduled on shift breaks, promoting a culture to support training mental health on shift. I mean, this is not just for a pandemic. This is things that these are things that we should learn from uh, from our everyday practice, really. And uh, normalising discussions on psychological distress in emergency medicine, and access to uh, mental health resources when necessary. So I thought this was, of course, this this. Uh, project took part a little bit later in the pandemic um when so i think it was when was it november 2020 to february 2021 so when the pandemic had really taken hold and it was that really difficult winter certainly those uh, themes reflect my own experiences sarah what do you think yeah absolutely and i think that paper really sums up probably all my feelings of 2020 to be honest from the beginning of the pandemic and subsequently 
are really a lot to learn, not only about pandemics and management's pandemics, but managing stressful environments with changing situations. And again, you know, that segues nice into my our third COVID-themed paper, which is around intubations of patients with COVID. And again, way back in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when we were under, trying to understand COVID-19, there was lots of concerns around, you know, actually intubation, because we knew it was a respiratory virus. We were really unsure how that was going to be transmitted, but there was huge concerns around intubation and, and lots of novel ways to intubate patients. Um, this actual paper is titled Factors Affecting Providers' Comfort and Fear of Intubations of Patients with COVID-19, with the lead author being Esther Lee, and this was conducted in the United States. And this study, which I think, again, is fitting within the same windows of the previous studies, uh, is September 2020 to January 2021. So really at the height of the worst of the pandemic, probably of the first wave, you know, in, in the States. And what they did, they surveyed people from 55 hospitals and um, they got um, 50% of those people that responded were emergency medicine providers. And within the study that we're trying to ascertain really, you know, what helped and hindered um, level of intubating you know, patients and concerns. So some of the factors that were associated with higher comfort level of intubating patients included if you're more senior, so if you're an attending consultant for our UK colleagues, if you've already performed more than 20 COVID-19 intubations, um, if you're participating in an intubating team, um, and, um, you know, if you had adequate levels of personal protective equipment. Interestingly, when looking at the differences between emergency physicians and anesthesiologists or anesthetists, um, anesthetics had a higher fear of contracting COVID during the first and subsequent, uh, any subsequent COVID intubations that they had versus emergency medicine doctors. And that was an interesting finding. And, and also another finding was that the older you were and the more years practice you had you generally had a greater comfort with and less fear about doing intubations in in this context and it's particularly interesting so when looking at attending physicians of the most experience has an adjusted odds ratio of 2.6 with a, a confidence interval of 95 percent uh, between 1.4 to 4.8 so really that seniority is playing an, an important part What's really key for, you know, looking forward as the pandemic continues and other respiratory, you know, illnesses are around and our thoughts about what could be coming next. This study really has suggested that being part of a dedicated intubation team is really helpful. Uh, participating in regular simulation exercises, having access to um, personal protective equipment could also improve intubators' self-perceived risk of contracting COVID-19. I don't know what your thoughts were about this. Uh, it, it certainly related to me, some of the fears I remember back way back when COVID came out. 
Yeah, that's right. So I, I noticed that people were less afraid when they had adequate PPE. I remember feeling in COVID recess, it was one of the safest places in the department when we had adequate PPE, which wasn't all the time, but when we did, it felt safe because you had it. So I can relate to that. And also this thing about intubation teams, we had intubation teams in RED uh, that would come down for COVID-19. And I found that a really helpful thing, actually. It felt very supported, felt like, yeah, you know, it, uh, very calm because you had lots of people on hand. I would be really interested to know in follow-up to this how it's impacted on our practice of intubation and the emergency department uh, in an ongoing way and maybe how it's affected confidence of emergency physicians. Uh, the anaesthetists took over intubations in RED during COVID-19 um, and because they had specific training on how to do it in the context of COVID-19. And um, I think that might have harmed confidence because the pandemic went on so much longer than we, well, the, the, the big waves of the pandemic, I should say, went on so much longer than we thought. Um, actually, you feel like you can, you can de-skill a little bit. So I'd, I'd be very interested in a follow-up from this to see how it's affecting us in an ongoing way. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think obviously you're a big centre where you currently work and you do a lot of in-house intubations from an emergency point of view. As somebody who has never worked in a department where I do intubations, being the emergency physician, it's always the anaesthetist or intensive care. I guess that feeling probably hasn't affected me as much, but I guess um, that, you know, depends, I guess, where your centres are and what they're up to. And it's an interesting thought. You're probably right. I wonder if confidence has waxed and waned a little. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on from COVID-19, I've covered a paper which looks at domestic violence so very important issue in the emergency department. We have quite a responsibility to recognise uh, domestic violence and offer help to uh, the victims. And the paper that I covered is from Queensland in Australia. Uh, they present a large survey of emergency clinicians. So it's actually a variety of different professional backgrounds. And the, the uh, work, the sort of professional background that was most represented was nursing, actually, in this study. And they, they surveyed 496 emergency clinicians across nine hospitals. And they asked a number of questions in this survey to do with whether we screen patients routinely for domestic violence when they come to the ED, how the clinicians felt about it. Is it important? Is it something they think that we should do for everyone or should we do it in a targeted way? Uh, and a number of other questions, uh, which I thought were were pretty interesting, actually. They took an interesting approach to the analysis. So you're in, if you're interested in analysing survey data, have a good look at the paper, and you'll be able to see that they used something called principal component analysis. I won't go into the details on the podcast, but if that is something that piques your interest, go and have a look, because it's really interesting. I've not seen that before. But, you know, sort of qualitative approach to, uh, to analysing the survey data. So what were the things that came out from this uh, large survey about domestic violence and our, our approach to practice? Well, there were some quite disappointing things. Uh, we don't seem to screen very much. Less than 2% of all of the respondents said that they routinely screen patients for uh, potential domestic violence. There were some barriers identified to that. Things like, you know, they might feel that they're going to embarrass the patient. Over 40% of patients thought that so participants, sorry, thought that their patients may be offended or embarrassed if um, if they were asked about it. And I can relate to that one. 
they identified three categories of barriers, actually. There are intrinsic barriers. So that's things about yourself as an emergency clinician that will stop you from screening. That's things like lack of confidence. And, you know, you can empathize with that. You know, this isn't something that we see very, well, it's not our day-to-day. I was going to say not that we don't see it very commonly. Actually, we probably underappreciate how often this occurs in our patient group. But we're not confident because it's not our core business in emergency medicine, perhaps. There are concerns about liability, about lack of knowledge about how to screen uh, patients. So training is going to be an important issue to address this. There are also extrinsic barriers. So, and they're things to do with, for example, the environment that we work in. Uh, a lot of people mentioned that there are no single rooms. Um, 90, or almost 90% of respondents mentioned that there are no single rooms in their ED. Now, this winter, I'm sure we all feel that because... I mean, we can't even get a room, never mind a single room, <laughs> to screen people. So that lack of privacy and dignity uh, is going to compromise our ability to screen for domestic violence uh, effectively. The high patient load, of course, goes with that. And then there's, there's time as well, not having time to screen, which is, I think is an, an important barrier for these things. There are some things that are really important for us to do, like screening for domestic violence, looking for risk factors, screening for HIV, hepatitis C, all of these things. Uh, but some people say, well, say, actually, it's really hard for us to do that when we can't do, look after the emergencies, our core business. We'd like to do them, but we just don't have time. And then there are patient factors as well. Uh, dementia was uh, the most common patient factor that was mentioned. Really importantly, you know, there's a very, very, very vulnerable patient group that can't give you the history about uh, potential domestic violence, but very vulnerable patient group and very important to be able to scream. But that was a barrier, non-English speaking. Um so there were plenty of other things that, that came out and I think plenty that we can learn about our approach to screening for domestic violence in the ED. The vast majority of respondents agreed that this is something that we should be doing. And so it makes you think, I think, you know, um, important to just take the time having read this to reflect on how we um, screen for domestic violence, what we do about it if it's revealed to us uh, do we just do the, the minimum? Is there anything else that we could do? There's a list of things in, in one of the tables here that we could potentially offer to patients who reveal to us that they may be a victim of domestic violence. And it's more than just filling out an incident form, making a safeguarding referral, or getting social services involved, getting the police involved, etc. There's plenty more that we can be doing. So take a read of the full paper and you'll, I'm sure, pick up some important tips. Sarah, what do you think about this one? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's, probably unfortunately as in recent years given what's been happening and the challenges of emergency medicine at the moment will probably have gone by the wayside as someone that has you know unfortunately probably like a lot of our listeners you know met patients along the way who've experienced domestic violence and you know I've got friends who have gone through it um, you know it is hugely impactful and trying the best way to, to screen for it and ask questions and, and, and not put any biases in uh, and remembering, you know, men and women can be equally affected by it is hugely important. And this paper really highlights, you know, whilst it's an Australian perspective, I think it's a perspective probably relates to a lot of places around the world. And, and partly maybe some of it is fear about not knowing what the best thing to do is, how to ask those questions. Um, so I think it really valuable topics to, to discuss. Um, and hopefully, you know, that they'll be looking into some more. And it makes me think that we probably should do a little bit more within the UK. Yeah, absolutely. So 
the final topic that we're going to cover today is testicular torsion and the diagnosis of torsion in the emergency department. We've got two papers that hopefully complement each other. Yes. Sarah, you've taken a look at a systematic review. Yeah, so um, testicular torsion. So um, time is testicle, as we're often taught. Um, and this is a, a, systematic and a, a systematic review and a meta-analysis looking at the diagnostic accuracy of point-of-care ultrasound for paediatric testicular torsion. And the lead author is Mori et al. And again, we're going global on this. This is from Japan and Singapore. So they conducted a typical systematic review, a meta-analysis, um, looking at uh, the utility of POCUS uh, it's a point-of-care ultrasound for paediatric testicular torsion. Um, whittling it down from lots of papers, they found four studies that met the criteria. And I think it's really interesting. So, um, And these studies were looking at you know, non-radiologists, so be it emergency medicine doctors or urologists, um, doing the point-of-care ultrasound and not your radiologists or your ultrasonographers doing it. And it's quoted that in... Ultrasound that is done by radiologists to diagnose testicular torsion in adults, it's suggested it has a sensitivity of 86% and a, a specificity of 95% with in the pediatric patients using experts, so radiologists and ultrasonographers, they have a sensitivity and specificity of 90%. And it's really important to bear that in mind given, given what the paper finds. So um, having whittled all those papers down to four studies, they found 784 patients in total were included. They pooled the sensitivity and specificity were able to be pulled from two of the four papers due to data being available and giving a 98.4% sensitivity and a 97.2% specificity within respect to that in the utility of point-of-care ultrasound by non-specialists doing it. What's important to note about the four papers that are included are that uh, only one of them was actually done by paediatric emergency medicine doctors. The rest were urologists that were conducting it. The paper overall, you know, comes across as very positive, um, but the authors themselves recognise there are some limitations including, um, you know, that it's not just PEM physicians. Bias across the papers was, was varied, um, and they didn't have access to all the, the data for, for some of the papers. With that um, said, I think this is a really important paper that's looked at the role of POCUS within a paediatric population, which is um, being further researched, and particularly on such an important topic as um, testicular torsion, uh, it's really important that we get the diagnosis early and correct. And I think this paper lends itself to that more research needs to be done about this topic. And it does suggest that with non-radiologists and non-ultrasonographers that actually point-of-care ultrasound has a high sensitivity and specificity. And like all research, probably needs more being done with it. I agree with that conclusion. Having looked at the data, I was so surprised by the sensitivity and specificity because they were so high. The negative predictive value uh, of ultrasound and the uh, 
pooled metrics was 99.5%. Uh, and if you, you know, if you believe that and take it on face value, then you're really thinking that this is pretty good rule out test for testicular torsion um, with, you know, of course, a little caveat that so you've got to use clinical judgment and nothing ever absolutely rules out by itself, especially with a condition as important clinically as testicular torsion. But I was so surprised to see those figures. Um, very, very promising data that could potentially avoid a lot of unnecessary scrotal exploration if we really, really could rule out testicular torsion. But it's absolutely appropriate that the authors have concluded that, you know, we need further research to consider these findings preliminary before we, we trust that we can rule out torsion on ultrasound because it's such an important thing. And that brings us on to the last paper because I've also had a look at a paper uh, which looked at the accuracy of ultrasound, among other things, for testicular torsion in the emergency department. So, and, and this really puts the cat amongst the pigeons. I said I hope they're going to be complementary, but this does really put a spanner in the works of that rule-out test, really. Because here we've got a single centre retrospective evaluation of 10 years of cases that came in with suspected torsion. And it's from Lithuania. Really nice to see a paper from Lithuania. They've managed to include over 500 cases in this uh, evaluation, and they've got some quite detailed data from the participants uh, on, you know, on the, the symptoms that they, they had. And they've been able to look at the diagnostic accuracy, not only of ultrasound, but of, well, individual ultrasonographic um, parameters, but also some uh, clinical signs for whether they had uh, torsion eventually as their final diagnosis. And there were some interesting findings. Uh, the blue dot sign. Have you heard of the blue dot sign for testicular torsion? The little uh, hard blue nodule that you're supposed to see at the upper pole of the testis in uh, patients who have torsion. Um, well, that had a sensitivity of 2%. No surprise on that one, because I've never seen it. Never seen it in practice. But it was fairly specific. It's 88% specific. So, you know, if you see it, then, you know, then worry in the context of someone with a, a painful hemiscrotum. But, um, yeah, not very sensitive at all. So don't rely on that one. Uh, interestingly, there were some other uh, highly specific findings. Vomiting was highly specific, and that didn't surprise me. With a sensitivity of thirty percent, specificity of ninety nine point two percent, that you know that that fits with my own experience. Diarrhea had a specificity of ninety nine point two percent. Now, don't go thinking that every kid who comes to the emergency department with diarrhea has testicular torsion. That's not what we mean. It's not rule in for everybody. This is in the children and the, the patients who you suspected torsion in, in the first place. So, you know, just bear in mind, uh, though, that, uh, of course, if I saw, you know, a, a patient who had diarrhea along with it, it would, if anything, make me think that torsion was less likely. And in fact, it's got a very high specificity for testicular torsion in this patient group. Uh, and a temperature over 37 had a specificity of 90%. So quite interesting findings, really. Because you see, if you, you know, see a fever, you might think, oh, it's more likely to be epididymitis in this patient, but um, actually seems to be fairly specific. Uh, on ultrasound, the really interesting finding, the, the, the key thing, absent testicular blood flow had a sensitivity of 58%. Amazing. So it really is not the rule-out test that uh, it was suggested to be in a systematic review, according to this paper, at least, anyway. And then if you want to go into the details, if you're interested in ultrasound, you can see the sensitivity and specificity of all sorts of different ultrasonographic parameters like hydrocele, tissue edema, edema of the epididymis, to see how accurate they were. Bottom line, none of them rule in, none of them rule out. <laughs> no surprise. So bottom line from this one, 
do not delay your referral to urology and your exploration of the painful hemiscrotum if you suspect torsion. Don't delay it, even to get an ultrasound scan. Just go and get this, get, the, get it explored if you think about it. As you said, Sarah, time is testicle. Well, wow. Yeah, the cats have, you know, and those pigeons have scarpered now, haven't they? Dosh. Uh, what can we say? I think what this paper really highlights is testicular torsion is really a difficult diagnosis to make. Um, and, you know, I've worked in big centers and small centers and, you know, they use testicular ultrasound in a variety of different ways. I think ultimately my feeling is having worked with a lot of pediatric surgeons is that they'd rather just take them to theater and not run the risk. Yeah. And I've got personal family experience uh, of, of, of this sort of situation and was quite glad they went straight to theatre for exploration. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that brings us uh, to the end of the podcast for February 2023. We've had a smattering of COVID, testicles and domestic violence. So it's going to be a great uh, issue for you to have a read with. And I'm going to say goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And see you next time. Take care.